Let me pray for just a second again. Welcome, Woods. Good to see you. Welcome back, Joe. Lord, uh, Aaron mentioned as we got started, we bring so many distractions with us. Uh, Lord, even just the fellowship we enjoy with each other here, a great thing. But when we're together in your word, we need you to still our hearts, to still the thoughts that might otherwise trouble us or keep us from hearing what you want to say to us. Lord, we know that your word is alive. And your spirit uses the truth in the scriptures to help us by convicting us, by showing us what's true, by encouraging us, by exhorting us. And we simply pray that your spirit would be free in our midst. We would be free of distractions so that each one of us can receive the things you want for us this morning, Lord. No more, but certainly no less. And we give ourselves to you, give our minds, our emotions, and our wills now in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, I've got my note in front of me. Sorry, guys, we've got to pray again. Camp Barnabas. Jocelyn, thanks. I, I totally forgot. Lord, we've got a crew at Camp Barnabas this week, still going through Tuesday. And Jocelyn just mentioned the difficulties they're having and sort of feeling like the enemy's at work. And we simply band together as their brothers and sisters in Christ, some of us parents and friends also. And we ask, Lord, that your spirit would be working in them and through them. We pray you would give them great grace and patience with each other, with the folks that they're serving. We pray you would stop and arrest their attention and remind them who they belong to and why they're there. Lord, help them to take their own thoughts captive to the obedience of Christ. And Lord, when they come home, help them to be able to say God was in the details and we submitted to his will. So Lord, help our friends our family at Camp Barnabas through the rest of this week. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay. If you've ever visited anyone else's house, uh, you know you go in and you see that things are a little different than your own. Uh, They might decorate a little differently, or if you sit down, the meatloaf tastes different than at your house. You know, they, they do things different. Who takes out the trash or... Or the way things work, you know, what the expectations are on a lot of that. And everybody has spoken or unspoken. If you're a household, you have spoken or unspoken rules of your house. There's expectations among the members of that household about the way we do things. Or some things we do or some things we simply don't do. So there's house rules. And hopefully for us, those are well known. They're defined. And and we all know in our own household what that looks like what those expectations are. As Christians, we live in a house, uh, God's house. And in God's household, he has house rules too. And God's household rules, they're, they're designed by him. We, we don't come in and tell God what things are going to be like in his household. He designates those. He has expectations for the children who live and grow up in his household. And that's what we'll be talking about this morning. And because we're talking about standards that someone else has for us, it's good just to check in our mind as we go into this this morning that it's okay for God to have rules whether we like them or not. You know, we're a very independent culture. And somebody else telling us how things are, this is sometimes hard to swallow. So, so just sort of check maybe the rise that comes in us as we talk about things this morning. I don't like that. That one's okay. That one's not. And look at your Bible when you go home. You can see if this all measures up or not. But God has his own household. 
And he has his house rules in his household. He has his standard operating procedures that he expects of us, his children. This is the way Paul talked about this in 1 Timothy 3, 14 and 15. He had written his young protege, Timothy, and Timothy's been left behind at the church in Ephesus to set things in order. And as Paul's going through this list of sort of housekeeping, house rules list with Tim in this letter, he says this right in the middle of the letter. Tim, I'm writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long, should see you face to face. But in case I'm delayed, I write so that you'll know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the support of the truth. So Timothy, God has a household and it's the church. And I want you to know how to live, how to grow, how to operate in God's house under his household rules. So when you read through 1 Timothy, you read through things about the kind of things we talk about, the way we use the law or don't use the law in chapter 2. You read about men praying and you read about the way women dress or don't dress, sort of the priorities. Chapter 3 is talked about what kind of men should be leaders in the church, elders and deacons in 4, 5, and 6. He goes into the relationships we have elders with youngers, richer with poor. It's all about relationships in God's household. That's First Timothy. And so he says, Tim, I hope to see you soon, but in case I'm delayed, you need to know these things because these are God's household rules. These are the expectations God has for us in his household. Now, there's a lot we will not cover this morning. We're not going to cover elements specifically like prayer and worship. Primarily what we'll talk about are God's household rules related to the way we treat and interact with each other. Hopefully you have a study sheet. Seven points is a lot to keep track of, so I hope you have a study sheet with you this morning. If you don't, maybe there's some bulletins still in the back. The first, uh, God has a dress code. In God's household, did you know there's a dress code? And you know, when you look at our church on any given Sunday morning, there would be no expectation that God has a dress code, would there? None. None. The outside anyway, right? But God does have a dress code. It's not related to the way we get up in the morning and dress, is it? It's not an external dress code, but it is a very significant and important dress code. In fact, it's the essential dress code. Without this dress code, you can't get into God's household. You don't belong to him, and you can't grow up in his house. Jesus told a story in Matthew 22 about a king who was honoring his son and his son's new bride at a wedding feast. And the king says, the time has come, the feast is here, and the invited guests were supposed to come. And they don't. For one reason or another, they choose not to come. But the king rounds up everybody around the countryside. He brings them in. He fills the hall to celebrate his son and his son's wife at this wedding feast. And Jesus says, when the king came to look over the dinner guests, he saw a man there who was not dressed in wedding clothes. And he said to him, friend, how did you come in here without wedding clothes? He's there in his dingy, dirty, whatever he came in with clothes. He doesn't have the gown that would have been provided for him, probably by the host. The man's speechless. The king said to the servants, bind him hand and foot, throw him into the outer darkness. Most of the time we hear this, it's like, what gives? That sounds so harsh. This was an insult to the king. And this guy didn't have to provide his own wedding robes, they would have been given to him. So for this guy to sit in the king's hall at the king's son's feast without the appropriate outer covering was an insult 
It was a great insult to the prince, to the king, and to everyone else there. Now, the guy didn't have to provide it. This isn't an indictment. He was poor. The poor guy couldn't afford one. No, it would have been provided for him. So this was an intentional passage out of the norm, and he just walks in and says, I'll do this my way. And in the king's house, that was not acceptable. He could not remain in that setting, that feast setting, with those old grubby clothes on. Now, as you know, God's less concerned about our exteriors, far less than we are, but he is concerned about what goes on inside. In Isaiah's day, in Isaiah 64, 6, Isaiah, talking about the way we're dressed on the inside, said this, All of us have become like one who is unclean. All our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. Isaiah, looking at Israel in his day, says, You know, we're just a dirty lot. And the best we can come up with our moral clothing, the best it looks like is a filthy, dirty rag before a holy God. Isaiah says, we are, as we come into God's presence, we're dressed in filthy rags just like that guy at the king's feast. This will not do in the household of a holy God. In Revelation 7, 14, John speaks about a group of people who would come out of the tribulation. And of them, he says, they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. This sounds oxymoronic, doesn't it? They made them white by washing them in blood. But of course, the picture here is that Christ's blood morally covered them. And because they were morally covered by Christ's blood, they had this clean righteousness before God. Not the filthy rags. They had the righteousness that Christ's blood, his sacrifice on the cross, his death, his resurrection gave them. This perfect gown. This sparkling white covering. You see the same thing in Revelation twenty-two fourteen. Blessed are those who wash their robes, the same thought, in the blood of the Lamb, so that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter by the gates into the city. This is the new Jerusalem. This is God's permanent household. And the ones there have washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb, and because of that, they have a perfect moral righteousness. And that's the kind of gown God is concerned with. On the outside, we may or may not look okay on any given Sunday, or in any given church service. It's inside that it counts. And to join God's family and to grow up in God's house, we have to have a covering that meets God's standards. We have to meet the dress code. And none of us can meet this dress code on our own. The righteousness we need is provided for us by our host, by our Father. It's Christ's perfect righteousness. So on this earth, it doesn't matter what household we come from. It doesn't matter what the income level is we live at. It doesn't matter who we know. It doesn't matter what we know. Nothing substitutes for this clean covering that's required in God's house except the righteousness that comes from Christ's merit on our behalf. His death, his resurrection, that's our righteousness. If you have not trusted Christ, you are not a member of his family. And all you've got is filthy rags before a holy God. This dressing appropriately for the feast, for God's household, it's putting on Christ's righteousness. It's saying yes to God's offer of salvation. 
the free gift of eternal life through Jesus Christ. So if you don't have that yet, accept the offer of forgiveness and Christ's righteousness. Wash your robes, as it were, in the blood of Christ and be clean and join the family. So the first thing is God's house does have a dress code and you've got to meet his standard, not yours and not mine. In God's house, we're commanded to ask for and to give forgiveness. This makes sense in in the household of a forgiving God, doesn't it? But this is something we really forget. And guys, this is something that we can't afford to forget or not practice. Kids, you know, if you take your sibling's toy or if Johnny kicks Sarah and your parent finds out, after they verbally reprove you, Don't they tell you to go back to your brother or sister and say, I'm sorry? Go back and say, I apologize for what I did. Nicholas, isn't that the way it works at your house? Yeah, mine too. I'm sorry I kicked my brother. I'm sorry I took my sister's toy. In God's house, when we injure, when we do wrong to one of our siblings, we're supposed to go and ask for their forgiveness, say we're sorry. Jesus said it this way in Matthew 5. Sorry, guys. He says, if you're presenting your offering at the altar and remember that your brother has something against you, you're at the temple. You're at God's house, Jesus says. And you're ready to have a good time with your dad. You're presenting an offering and that means you're going to hang out at the temple. You're going to eat some of that food. The priest gets some. You get some. It's a celebration. It's a good time. It's a family gathering. But Jesus says, if you find yourself there, you're ready to celebrate with dad. And then you remember, oh, my brother has something against me. This means you've wronged your sibling, and you know it, and they know it. This is an iffy. This is clear. I did wrong to my brother. I wronged my sister. And I remember that as I come to celebrate before my dad, then I'm supposed to leave my offering, go and be reconciled first to my sibling, and then come back and celebrate with my dad. If I know I have wronged one of my siblings in Christ, one of my brothers or sisters in Christ, I'm supposed to go and say, I'm sorry I kicked you. I'm sorry I took your toy. I'm sorry I blew it. I didn't do what I said I would or whatever. We're supposed to go and say, I'm sorry. Just like we would in the family we grew up in. The flip side of that too is we're supposed to shake hands or hug each other and say, I forgive you, when one of our siblings comes up and says, I'm sorry. I don't know if this works this way in your house. Back in the day, we would either have to shake hands with my brothers or we'd have to hug each other. When our girls were little and this was going on, we'd make them hug each other. And, and there's method in that, isn't there? Because if we're still at odds, we don't want to shake hands, do we? And, and we don't want to hug each other, do we? But this was the deal. Your brother wronged you. Your sister wronged you. They've come up. They've acknowledged their fault. And they've said, please forgive me. And, and in God's house, you forgive them. You shake hands. You hug them and you make up. Matthew 6, 9, when the disciples say, Lord, how do you pray? You know, what's a model for prayer? You know, Jesus says, well, you can pray this way. This is a model. Our Father. It's plural. Father. It's the Father of both of us or all of us. It's our common dad. And later he says, forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. Lord, would you forgive us 
because we have forgiven those who have sinned against us. You'll see in the New Testament especially, our forgiveness, our right standing with God is tied to our willingness to forgive others. And we'll cover more of this base here in just a second. But when God gave us a model for prayer, forgive us because we have forgiven others. The whole relationship depends on this. Luke 17, if your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. If he sins against you seven times a day and says, I repent, forgive him seven times a day. Lord, how often should I forgive my brother or my sister? They've done it again. My son or my daughter, my parent. How often should I forgive them? As often as it takes. What's the standard for forgiveness, for granting forgiveness? This is Colossians 3.13. Paul says, bear with one another, forgive each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, who's not included in that? Nobody. Whoever, that's anyone, has a complaint against whoever, anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. How often does God forgive you or me? Often as it takes. How often do we want God our Father to forgive us? Every time we say, again, I'm sorry. Guys, I woke up this morning saying, Lord, I blew it again. I'm sorry. Thanks for forgiving me. You know, and and I know my dad forgives me. That's my model for forgiving the brother or sister that sins against me in God's household. You know, we try and hold on to these things. We nurse, man, they blew it again. I'm bitter. We hold on to that. It's poison. And it's a total dishonoring to Christ. We're supposed to forgive others as we've been forgiven by God, fully, totally, completely, and every time we ask for it. So in God's house, we are expected to ask for forgiveness when we've blown it, and that's clear, and we're expected to grant forgiveness when someone has come up and asked us for it. In God's house, we're expected to share our toys, too. To share. You know, this is an important lesson for kids. You know, if little Jenny goes to little Sally's house, Sally's mother says something like, Now, Sally, play nice and share your toys. I mean, that's the whole thing. She's here to play, Sally, play nice and share your toys. That's the whole thing. She's come over to play, so it makes sense that we'd share. As long as we're in the same place, it makes sense that we share with each other. In God's house, we share our toys or anything else we have. This is sort of an acid test, too, certainly uh, in the epistles. 1 John 3 says it this way, Whoever has the world's good and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? John says this is a contradiction in terms. God is love. If you're a Christian, God's spirit dwells in you. Love lives in you. And so John says, if you see your brother has a need, how could you turn them away without giving them something of what you have to fulfill that need? How can you be connected to the God of love and do that? It doesn't make sense. He says, little children, let us not love with word or with tongue. This does not mean don't tell someone you love them. But it means in contrast to just saying it, he says, do it in deed and truth. It's not about words so much at the end of the day. It's about what we do. So love each other in word and deed. And this has to do with meeting the needs we're aware of with our brothers and sisters in Christ. James 2 is the same thing. 
brother or sisters without clothing, they have need for food. One of you says, go in peace. Or how about, I'll pray for you. Prayer's good, but be warm and be filled. And James says, what good is that? Don't bother saying it. If you have the ability to help meet the need, words are meaningless. In God's house, we're called to share our toys or our food or our finances or our homes or our time or our energy. In God's house, we play nice and we share our toys or whatever else God has blessed us with. 1 Timothy 6.18, for people in the church at Ephesus that had a lot of money, Paul told Timothy, tell them, remind them. Don't fix your hope on the uncertainty of riches. Don't think that's where life is. And towards your siblings in Christ, be generous and ready to share. If God's blessed us with wealth, we're supposed to have this attitude, I want to be generous and ready to share with others with that. Now in God's house, we're not only generous and we play nice and share our toys with those in the family, but our God is a very generous God. He's a benevolent God. He blesses everyone. And we're expected to practice hospitality. That is to those who aren't in God's family. To outsiders. Paul says it this way in Romans 12, 13. On one hand, Paul says, contribute to the needs of the saints, the holy ones, your fellow Christians. Meet their needs. As you're able, contribute to their needs. But then he also says, practice hospitality. Hospitality is the generosity or the overflow of giving we practice to those who are not in the family of God, to those who are outside his household. That's hospitality. In Hebrews 13.2, it says the same thing. Don't neglect to show hospitality to strangers. Some have entertained angels without knowing it. Hospitality, when we show hospitality to those who have no claim on us, other than our common humanity, we are displaying the character of our Father in his house because we have a benevolent, caring, giving God. You know, Jesus says he causes his sun to shine on the righteous and the unrighteous. That's our Father's goodness. And we're called to display that in hospitality to strangers. This is one of the things, and I've mentioned this many times in the past, but my parents practiced hospitality. And I grew up with this model in front of me that our home was open. And especially at holidays when there were people with no family and no other friends to be around, we had the oddest assortment of people at our house on holidays. And you know, at the time when we were small, it was like, do we really have to do this? Do they really need to be here? You know, the older we got, the more we savored the, the variations on themes of humanity around mom and dad's table. But I look back, and that's, that's one of my great treasures my parents have given me. It was this display of hospitality. They opened our home to anyone who needed it. And sometimes for lengthy stays, people that weren't easy to get along with oftentimes, but they practiced hospitality. In God's house, we also have chores. Chores is kind of a, a country or a farm term. I don't know what you guys say in your house. We have uh, household duties in God's house. Um, if you, you guys here that are maybe 15 or lower, do you have jobs to do? We called them jobs with the girls. We weren't from the country. We had jobs to do in the house. Do you know like you have to take the trash out? 
uh, Rebecca, or you've got to do the dishes after supper, or, you know, there's something that you're supposed to do. It's expected that you're contributing to the house because you're doing your jobs. You're doing your chores. And, you know, kids forget these things easily. So I know in a lot of refrigerators, there's a checklist of Junior's chores, his job list, and he's supposed to check those off when they're done. So he knows and mom and dad know his jobs have been done. There are chores to do in God's household. There's just things that need to be done, just simple housekeeping. So, you know, on Sundays, somebody, not me, somebody got here early this morning and rearranged this room because the tables and the chairs were all set up together. And then they'll stay late and they'll rearrange it the same way so that it's that way when we leave, the way it's supposed to be. That's just chores. That's just jobs. You know, and there are greeters at the door to pass out bulletins. They're just coming early. They're hanging out so that they can serve others who are coming in. And through most of the year, there are people who are serving. They're just doing jobs. They're running the nursery. They're serving in the nursery. They're doing the same thing in kids' Sunday schools. These are just jobs. They, they are things that need to be done in God's household. And God expects us all to chip in and to be a part of that process. This is an extra credit. This isn't above and beyond the call. This is just being part of a household. It's that we're serving each other in some way. We had a great response to the men's questionnaire a few weeks back. Guys volunteering to step up and serve in some capacity in the church. Guys, this is just normal. In God's house, we should be doing our chores. Whatever those are, we should all be contributing. Instead of we're just coming in as consumers, we should be giving back. We should be taking out the trash. Doing Sometimes literally. Potluck Sundays, literally taking out the trash. But doing whatever it is that comes up that needs to be done. There's a second side of that too. In Second Thessalonians, Paul wrote to a church, really neat church in, in one way. Paul had told this group, Jesus is going to return. And you're going to be raptured. You're going to be caught up with him. First Thessalonians 4. You're going to be caught up to heaven to meet Christ in the air and you'll always be with him. And so the Thessalonian church, they believed Jesus could return at any moment. They believed it. They bought it. But they went further than Paul wanted to with this, so they quit their jobs. And Jesus didn't come back. Does this sound familiar? This is current day, isn't it? Mr. Camping and Adventists and Millerites in the 1800s too. Yeah. So Christ has returned. I'll quit my job. No. So what was going on? So Paul writes them with his second letter and he says, guys, uh, no. See, they ran out of money. So what are they doing? Christ could return any moment. I'm not going to bother getting a job. So Larry, what are you serving Friday night? Could I come over to your house? And Woods, what are you serving Saturday night? I'll come to your house Saturday. So they were freeloading. They quit their jobs. Jesus is coming back. I'll quit my job and... Oh, he hasn't come back yet. Well, but you're still working. So you can take care of me. And I'll just make the rounds. And Paul says, no, no, no. In fact, Paul says, when I was there in your town, when the church started there, he says, I worked hard night and day. I paid for all my own food, even though I didn't have to. I was an apostle. And I could have had you support me. But he said, I wanted to give you a model, an example that all of us should work hard. 
and that we should provide for our own needs and that we should have something extra to be able to share with others. That's why I did that, to give you an example. So Paul says we should all be working, meeting our own needs and meeting the needs of others as we're able. Now there are times in life you're going to find yourself unemployed. You might find yourself disabled. Guys, there's always something we can contribute in the body of Christ. There's always some of those housekeeping chores we can take care of. But in God's house, there's work to do, whether it's the simple, it's taking the dishes, doing the dishes, or taking the, doing the dishes, or taking the trash out, whatever that looks like. Or if it's simply going to our job and providing for our own needs and having something to provide for others. You know, on Potluck Sunday, it's bringing enough that I've got something for myself and my family. It's bringing enough to share with others. That's the thought. We're all contributing to the needs of the household. The fifth point, in God's house, we're simply expected to treat each other well. I'm not sure of a better way to phrase this, but if you're a parent, you know that one of the things that gives you more joy than anything else in life is to see your children consciously blessing another one of your children. To see one child go out of their way to do something nice to bless their sibling. Because that one, one child you love is blessing another child you love. That's sort of as good as it gets. And the flip side is, if you see one of your children bashing, putting down, dissing one of your other children, how does that make you feel as a parent? Because now, one child you love is dissing another child that you love. And this is not a good thing. For us to be in right relationship with our Father, we've got to be in right relationship with each other. And that means we're called to bless each other. And this goes in all kinds of ways. So, for instance, even related to children, thinking of age, Jesus said in Matthew 18, talking about children, physically children, he said, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But if you stumble one of these little ones... If you interact with them in life such that they fall, they, they fall away from following me. He says, man, it would be better if you had a weight tied around your neck and drowned in the sea. He takes that so seriously, the way we treat little ones. In God's household, we take care of our little ones. That's from sharing Christ with them. That's from the nursery. That's from simply being considerate of the little ones in our midst, whether that's physical or whether that's young Christians being thoughtful making sure the way we're interacting in their life is positive and encouraging. It's not something that's going to set them back from their walk with Christ. Little ones, children. But you know, you go to the opposite end of the spectrum on age, and you see the same thing. Going back to Leviticus 19, when God gave the law to Israel, he embodied a principle about honoring the elderly in our midst. So in Leviticus 19.32, God said, Rise up before the gray-headed and honor the aged, and you shall revere your God, I am the Lord, or I am Yahweh. In Israel, God's house at the time, just like the church now, God said, I want you to show respect for the eldest in your midst. You know, rise up as a sign of respect for the elderly in your midst. And God said, when you show them respect, you're honoring or revering me. You don't see this much anymore. I know a lot of families will uh, have their children uh, call someone Mr. and Mrs. And it's to be very intentional about it's a sign of respect for someone that's 
older than them. But as a culture, we've sort of fallen away from this. But in God's economy, we're supposed to show respect for those who are older than us. Not just in Leviticus. If you go to, back to 1 Timothy 5, Paul told Tim, don't sharply rebuke an older man, but appeal to him as a father. Timothy was a young guy. Age-wise, he's young. And so Paul says, if there's an older brother in the church that's done something that you need to, to talk to them about, challenge them about, he says, don't sharply rebuke them. They're older than you. And that's not an appropriate interaction. So he says, appeal to them like a father. Show them respect that their age has earned them. He doesn't say don't reprove them, but he says do it in a way that shows them respect because of their age. And you see further on in 1 Timothy 5, starting at uh, verse 3, Paul then tells them how to treat the older women, the widows in the church. These were women who, minus their husbands, and also didn't have families that could take care of them. And so the early church, whether you look at 1 Timothy 5 or Acts 6, the early church was taking care of the widows in their midst. You know, there was no welfare in those days. And welfare had huge negative impacts on our culture in all kinds of ways. And this is just one more of them. But the church was taking care of the widows in the early church days. Not all of them. There's, there's actually quite a list there that... Only certain kinds of women actually met the criteria to be supported. But the thought was, you're going to take care of the elderly in your midst. You're going to show them respect on one hand, and you're going to provide for the needs of those who cannot otherwise provide for themselves. And last, just related to all of us, uh, Paul says in Romans 12:10, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor devoted in brotherly love. This isn't an afterthought. This is a way of life. This is something I practice regularly. Or in Philippians 2 verse 3, by the way, this is a passage that talks about Jesus humbling himself so he could serve us. Paul there says, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves, than ourselves. So just generally in God's household, God says, show esteem for each other more than for yourself. Prefer others. Have a, have a conscious thought in your mind. When I can, I'm going to defer honor or I'm going to bless someone else instead of myself, one of my siblings, one of my brothers or sisters in Christ. Prefer them in honor. Do the things that build them up. You know, when we show up on time, I'm going to hit below the belt here a couple of times. I'll just tell you going in. When we show up on time, that's showing honor to the person who's leading the class, the Sunday school class, or the meeting. You know, being on time shows another person honor. You matter. Do you know if we're late all the time what that says? You're not important enough for me to show up when we agreed to. It's a, it's a sign of disrespect. Being on time is just a way of saying you matter. You're important. Timeliness. It's a little thing, but it speaks volumes. When we help each other move, you know, we've got a fairly young church and people are moving in and out all the time. You know, it is so encouraging to show up at a move like yesterday and I was running a little late and there's all these guys there and the move is almost done. My timing was perfect. It was almost, you get credit because you showed up, but most of the work is done. Anyway, uh, that's brotherly love. That's devoted in brotherly love to others. You know there's a need and you show up. You can give them time. You do it. Or 
You know, when the church, people in the church take meals to that household that's had a new birth or a death or some other occasion in their life when they just can't keep the house running like they normally would, to simply show up being devoted in brotherly love to do what we can to bless them and help them, that's what God's after. In God's house, preferring others, devoted in brotherly love, that's what God's looking for. This isn't extra credit. It's not extra merit. It's not sainthood in some sense that we're head and shoulders above us. This is just the normal expectation. This should be our standard operating procedure in God's house. In God's house, we look out for each other. This is a hard one. Uh, Number six, in God's house, we are to obey those God put in charge or slash dad put in charge. You know, in the West, in in our time and day, the thought of obedience or submission to others has really taken a back seat. And we tend to be a very proud culture in the sense that we say, nobody tells me what to do. But you know, this thought is entirely unbiblical. You can't get that out of the scriptures. We are called to obey our leaders in the church. You know, when I was little and one of 11 kids, you can imagine my mom would sort of come to the end of herself fairly regularly. And so my dad would semi-regularly would take my mom away for a weekend. She would rescue. He would rescue my mom for the weekend. And so one of the older brothers or sisters was put in charge or a babysitter. And you probably know what my dad's last words to us were. Obey your brother. Obey your sister. Obey the babysitter. Because you know the thought is dad's saying, I'm going to be gone. But my representative is here. And I'll ask them how he did when I get back. So when in dad's absence we're supposed to obey the ones he's put in charge. That's a strong thing to say even today. But guys, this is exactly what the scripture says. So in 1 Peter 5, Peter's writing both to the church and at this point he's writing to other shepherds or pastors, church leaders. And he says, younger men likewise, be subject to your elders. All of you clothe yourselves with humility towards one another. God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. When we follow our leaders, we are showing appropriate humility to God as well as the leaders. In Acts 20, when Paul meets with the leaders from the church of Ephesus, he says, it's the Holy Spirit who's made you overseers in that church. This wasn't just some accident. It wasn't just what some guy decided. But Paul says, no, it's the Holy Spirit. It's God who's set you in that place of authority. And so when we respect or show deference or follow the lead of the leaders in the church, God says we are showing him honor. And that too, if we oppose the leadership of the church, God here in 1 Peter 5 calls it pride and that he's opposed to the proud. Now there are judgment and discernment issues to make here for sure. And you guys know if you keep track at all in the news, read the papers, online, whatever. um, There's all kinds of failure in church leadership. You know, I mean, it's ongoing. It it happens almost routinely. And Jesus said even in his day, though, these leaders you have, they sit in the seat of Moses. Jesus does say, do what they say. They're the leaders in Israel. But he says, don't do what they do. You know, don't live the way they do as hypocrites. But 
Do what they say. We're called to follow the leaders dad has left in his absence, so to speak. You see the same thing in Hebrews 13, 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them. They keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. The thought there is that when you're supportive of leadership, leaders tend to be better leaders. That actually comes out working better for you too. So in God's house, we're supposed to follow the lead of those God has left in charge. You know, this is really important. If you're in a local church and you, you feel that you can't respect or follow the lead of the leaders, you really should go find another church because that's the call. So if you said, man, they're out, out to lunch doctrinally or they're out to lunch practically, that's not the place you need to be because we're called to follow the leaders in the church we're in. That's one of God's house rules. The last one is this. God has table manners. Table manners. Did you guys grow up with table manners? Probably less so. Good. I am thrilled. Because I think this is, a, a, <clears throat> this is getting to be a part of nostalgic history. Uh, my, uh, my grandparents were Irish immigrants and everything was spit and polished, clean. You do it this way, you don't do it that way. And you know, one of my, my mom's house rules was no elbows on the table. I, you know, I'm sorry, I, I still blow that one. If I'm at your house, my elbows are on the table, apologize in advance. There were table manners. You set the table a certain way. You used your fork and knife a certain way and not other ways. There were table manners that were just expected of us. Well, God has table manners too. You can see this in 1 Corinthians 11. When Paul wrote the Corinthians about their table manners, this was the deal. The Corinthians had a potluck Sunday, just like, just like us today. They had a potluck Sunday. They called it a love feast. And it was a combination of the Lord's Supper, which we're doing right here in a minute, and a meal. But there was a problem because what was going on was there were poor people in Corinth. They didn't have much. And so they were coming to this meal and they didn't have anything to eat. And then there were people with quite a bit more means. They were coming to the meal with lots to eat and lots to drink. And so Paul says, some of you are there and you're hungry because there's nothing to eat. And some of you, you're actually drunk. You've eaten and you've drunk to excess. And God is not pleased. Guys, on one hand, this sounds like a small deal, doesn't it? Okay, so share. Do you know this was such a big deal to God that Paul says in verse 30, he says, because of this, some of you, some of you are sick and some of you sleep. Some of you have died. God has brought about in discipline, sickness and death among some of your members because of the way you're treating each other at his table. And think of this. Think of the hypocrisy. They sit down to remember the sacrificial, self-giving love of God the Father for them in Jesus' death and resurrection as they eat the bread and they drink the wine, right? And then they turn around and they dis their brothers and sisters that God loves equally by eating and drinking to excess with no thought of the person next to them. And this was so egregious to God, our Father, that Paul says some of you are sick and God has actually brought about the death of others of you in discipline because he's not going to put up with that at his table. Table manners. 
table manners. You know, when we have potlucks, we encourage people to bring more food than they're going to eat because we want enough food for everyone. We don't want anyone going away hungry. We have the guests and the elderly go through the line first because we're trying to be intentional about preferring others, those who are guests with us or those who are elderly and moms with little kids. There's a reason behind that. We're trying to show love and respect, especially after we've remembered what Christ has done with us at the table. Or, you know, when the, those in the front of the line practice moderation in how many stacks of food they can get on one plate. See, they're, they're, they're showing moderation for the rest of those at the end of the line who are wondering, will there be anything left by the time I get up there? That's showing appropriate love and respect to both Christ and to our brothers and sisters. And the Corinthians were just blowing this big time. And it was so serious. God says that is so out of line that some of you are sick. And I've just called some of you home. I've taken you out of the game altogether early. Some of my favorite memories in our own family, Kathy's and my family, were just sitting around the table. Uh, We've had so many good times with the girls and with guests around our table, around our supper table. You know, you eat something good, that's always a good thing. But around that good food, you enjoy each other's fellowship. And there's this giving and there's this receiving, there's encouragement. We listen to each other, we share with each other. That's what God wants in his family. That's the kind of brotherly or sisterly love God wants for us, for each other. Those family times around the table. We've provided for each other. We've welcomed each other around the table. We're sharing with each other. We're listening to each other's stories. We're sharing our stories with others. That's what God has called us into. In God's family, we practice this kind of table manner, this kind of hospitality with each other. You know, in tons of ways, uh, Lion Lamb is an exemplary church, and I think we do a great job in all kinds of ways at showing practically the love of Christ for each other. Uh, But you know there's always room for improvement. Paul said to the Thessalonians, as you receive from us how you ought to walk and please God, just as you actually do, excel still more. You're doing a great job. Keep it up. You're doing what we talked about. Excel still more. We're going to have the Lord's Supper now instead of later. And as we get ready for the Lord's Supper, just take some moments. We'll take just a couple moments here before we start. When we do, guys, you can form lines. I think you probably get two lines coming up through the center and going back on the sides. Take some of the bread, get some of the juice, go back to your seat. When you've done that, feel free to uh, eat the bread whenever you're ready. And if you'll hold those, the cups, we'll, we'll take that all together at the end. But, but before we start, it's just a great time, just like Jesus said, the guy at the temple with his offering, it's just a great time to pause and ask ourselves before our Father, are we okay with you, Dad? And are we okay with each other? Are we okay with our siblings? Sunday mornings can be a really tough time. And, you know, if you talk to a family and say, when do most of your arguments happen? Oftentimes it's Sunday morning before the church service. So if there's something you need to get right with the Lord, this is a great time to simply confess to God and thank Him for His forgiveness. 
If there's something you need to get right with a family member, you may have something that you need to say, I'm sorry for, I kicked you this morning, or I'm sorry I took your toy yesterday, or whatever that looks like. This would be a great time to do that. You know, if you feel that there's something you know between you and the Lord that needs to be resolved, that your conscience isn't quite clear until you take care of that, this would be a great Sunday to just refrain from the Lord's Supper also. But we want to take just a couple moments. Sean's going to play uh, the song that we'll sing after communion instrumentally. But just take a couple of moments. Ask the Lord, Lord, is there anything between you and me? Is there anything I need to get right with others? Am I living up to your house rules? Am I doing the things you want for me the way I'm treating your fellow children, the ones Christ died for? And Before we start, let me just pray. Lord... We, uh, we all sin in many ways. We, uh, we can't stop, Lord. We've got a sinful nature, and though you call us to holiness, the truth is we all blow it in many ways. Thanks for the forgiveness we have. And thanks that Jesus, in love for you and in love for us, left heaven and became a man, died on the cross for our sins, rose from the dead so that our filthy garments could be washed in his perfect righteousness, so that we could put on the righteousness of Christ, become members of your family, grow up in your household. Lord, thanks that every time we celebrate the Lord's Supper, it reminds us of that great wedding feast yet to come, ordained in heaven, in which we all sit around your table, feast in your presence. Lord, begin that family reunion that never ends, where there's no tears, there's no sin, there's no night, or there's nothing that detracts from perfect fellowship with you and with each other. Lord, thanks that your son, our older brother and Savior, Jesus, took on the mission to redeem us, to bring many sons to glory, to bring us into your family and into your household. Lord, thanks for your love for us as our Father. Lord Jesus, thanks for your sacrifice on our behalf. Thanks that we live in your family. In Jesus' name, amen.